fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. My name is Adrienne Hugh. I am known online as the Nutrition Heretic. You can find me at nutritionheretic.com. I am the host of the Nutrition Heretic podcast, and I'm your host for this evening. Well, the podcast is uh, to make people less neurotic, to uh, end the confusion about what to eat, and we do that by uh, smashing the sacred cows of cult-like diets, and um, we also aim to make sense of things that seem to conflict with one another. That includes health, nutrition, farming, and the environment. And we do this by talking to ethical scientists, researchers, farmers, and other health professionals who are not in the pockets of big corporations, but whose dedication to their field is derived from their personal quest for good health and the need to make Honesty and science compatible, once again. That brings me to tonight's guest, Mr. Andre Loy. I met Andre on the podcast two years ago when I was looking for someone to interview who was on the Monsanto Tribunal in The Hague. And this is the tribunal that brought Monsanto to a uh, mock trial uh, for crimes against humanity. Because I think most of us in this room would agree that's pretty much what it amounts to. And so last month I did, uh, I did a uh, telesummit called Frenching Your Food, and it's about the fact that the French do everything wrong, but they seem to outlive us, they have less disease, and they're a lot happier. <laughs> so, um, but what he did during the, you know, it was interesting because I had my, my assistant reach out to anybody who had been on the podcast before to see if they felt like they had something to say about this. And I was a little bit surprised at first, you know, my, my knee-jerk reaction uh, was uh, a little surprised when I heard that Andre was interested. And the reason why he was interested is because he had so much to say about how these poisons, the pesticides, the GMOs, contribute to unwanted weight gain and obesity. So tonight what he's going to do, right, <laughs> he's going to separate fact from fiction. And what he does is he dismantles the top myths used by chemical companies to make us think that their poisons are perfectly safe for human consumption, even though it kills everything else. And so, you know, I think most of us here, particularly in Hawaii, can agree that that's preposterous because you can fly into Kona International Airport or Honolulu Airport, wherever it is, and if you have something as innocuous as an apple in your bag, you will be fined, you will be quarantined, you will, <laughs> you will get all kinds of uh, you know, speeches about how uh, we have such a fragile ecosystem here in Hawaii. So if we're assigning that to what we normally consider you know, fairly innocuous plant products, you know, why are we not giving the same scrutiny to pesticides and GMO that are coming into the, into the islands? So, um, a little bit more about Andre. In addition to his part on the Monsanto Tribunal, he is the International Director of Regeneration International. 
He's former president and current ambassador for Eiffel Organics International. He is an organic farmer. <laughs> and he is the author of two books, and I hear a third book coming out. But his uh, two books that are out right now are The Myths of Safe Pesticides, it's a tongue twister for sure, and uh, Poisoning Our Children, A Parent's Guide to the Myths of Safe Pesticides. But before I bring him out, I want to acknowledge everybody who had a part in making this happen tonight. Uh, first and foremost, I want to thank El Alexandria over here of MyTraveledPath.com. And she's going to be recording, uh, as well as her husband who's going to be recording this on Periscope. That's Jim Niederost. <laughs> and uh, so, but she also went everywhere from Kohala down to South Kona distributing flyers um, and talking to farmers and really anybody who would listen, anybody who would give her the time of day. And she's fearless that way and that's why I'm so appreciative <laughs> for her part in this. Um, other people who have uh, come together to make this happening from equipment and rooms and, and so on, well obviously Kanamoka Aina has helped out by renting us this room. Uh, Alita Dale McCullough, who also distributed flyers. Uh, Pablo Weidler, who has provided us with a projector. Sarah McKay, who drove our guests of honor here. Uh, my daughters, uh, Daisy and Willow, who are gone right now. Uh, and Daisy's friend Marty, whose last name I forgot. Uh, <laughs> Melanie Holt of the Camuela Inn. And her incredibly hardworking staff. Uh, Ellen Carvalho, Shell, Ash Ashlyn, and Tania, who all made sure that Andre was taken care of and his room was ready and, and everything was good to go. And then, of course, there's people who couldn't be here tonight. Uh, my assistant, Crystal McLean, who is in Ireland, believe it or not. She is one of the hardest working people I have ever met. And this would not have come together without her blasting the media all the way from Ireland. My advisor, uh, Donalyn Price of Compass Rose Consulting in New Jersey, and Marie Fellenstein Hale, who is of the um, Facebook page uh, Start Sharing the News here in Waimea. She couldn't be here because, like me, she's got a bum leg. Uh, and I'm trying to stay off of it because my doctor's right here. <laughs> so um, so um, if you are hungry, there are, there's food over here that I've prepared. Um, so please help yourselves. And uh, it would be nice if I don't have to bring any home. Uh, we are accepting donations to help offset some of the costs here. So if you can, if you can donate, fine. If you can't, I totally get it. We, you know, we all have seen those days. Uh, but uh, we also have a raffle because Andre has donated a copy of his book for people to, um, to, to somebody to hopefully win. And you know, for the suckers who don't win, you can go on Amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, let's see. Um, the last thing I wanted to say is that you know tonight is not about making you neurotic. It's not about making you scared and paranoid about every morsel of food that you put in your mouth. But it is a wake-up call. Uh, you know we are going into electoral season, and we know that our politicians are not all on our side when it comes to this. And very often we get convoluted arguments about uh, you know, how safe they are, how good they are, and all the things that they do that's so great for us. And there is always another side to the story. Tonight, what uh, Andre is going to do, he's going to give you language. He's going to give you studies. He's going to show you the other side of the story. And with that, remember, what you learn here, you teach, you teach, you teach. Okay? You, you, Carry it forward. Don't just let it stop here. You just keep going, and you you know you're, you'll have the language by the end of tonight to start opening those conversations and to speak intelligibly on this topic. With that, I bring you Andre Lloyd. Thank you, Adrian. And I'd just like to say I'm so pleased to be here in Hawaii, the Big Island. This is a place I've been actually trying to get to for more than 40 years. <laughs> and Welcome. Yes, thank you. And it's a place I've read and studied about because really you live in one of the most unique places on this planet in terms of climate, biodiversity. I don't think there's anything like Hawaii. From the snow to the tropics, the desert to some of the wettest areas. 
and then virtually every climate in between because of altitude. So I can't tell you how pleased I am mm -hmm. to be here. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, turn the lights off. I'd just like to talk a little bit about my uh, current position. I was, for the last um, nine years, I was on the board of iPhone Organics International. That's the world body for the organic sector. And for the last six years of that, I, I was the president. I've stepped down. And now I'm part of a, another group of people like Bandana Shiva from Nadanya. Um, Ronnie Cummings from the Organic Consumers Association and others. And we've formed with Generation International. And what we want to do is promote food and farming systems that regenerate and stabilize our climate systems. Uh, that's actually, I'm on my way to Washington DC because I've been invited by the French Embassy to talk about, about this at an event there. Um, we also want the health of the, of the planet and people, communities, culture, local economies, democracy, and peace. We see that all of these go hand in hand. This is the book I, my latest book that I, I've written. It's called Poisoning Our Children. And I wrote this because when I wrote my first book, I realized there was absolutely no published peer-reviewed science that showed that any level of a chemical was safe for children. And the studies that we do have show that there is no level of any pesticide that is safe for the unborn, the newborn, and children going through, you know, up to puberty. It's a bit different when we're adults. And I'll speak more about that. I just want to start with one of the greatest mythologies about pesticides is that they're all um, tested, you know, rigorously tested, and you can trust that the pesticides are safe. If I was to tell you that in any formulated pesticide, in other words, farmers use formulations, multiple chemicals, only one nominated chemical, and a lot of times that can be less than 1%, they call it the active ingredient, has testing. The other 99%, there's no need for testing. And there is no need for testing the complete formulation that will have the active ingredient, that will have surfactant, solvents, and a whole range of other chemicals that are toxic. Some of them they test for what they call acute poisoning. The technical term is LD50, lethal dose 50%. How much of this chemical, how many grams or milligrams of this chemical will kill half a kilo, the two and a half pounds half of mice or rats or dogs or whatever. And that, that they set a basis that they use for toxicity. All that does is tell you how much you can kill you in two weeks. But if we want to talk about the majority of diseases we get, cancer, liver disease, heart disease, kidney disease, asthma, you know, metabolic syndromes, the reproductive, you know, we can go on and on and on. It's actually quite, it's an epidemic at the moment. The World Health Organization calls it the epidemic of non-communicatable diseases. You don't get cancer by sitting next to someone with cancer on a bus. <laughs> You're not going to get, you know, liver disease or, or nerve damage. You, know, you can go on and on and on. You're not going to become sterile or have reproductive problems because you're sitting next to someone else who's got reproductive problems. You get these from lifestyle and environmental factors. And this is, according to the World Health Organization, the biggest epidemic and the major cause of death of most people. And yet, no one wants to talk about it. So, you know, in the United States, for instance, there's about 1,400 products that the EPA has approved for the use in farming. 
Not one, not one has testing, particularly for children's health. Uh, nothing is tested for that. Reproductive effects, birth defects, organ damage, cancer, de developmental neurotoxicity, and I want to talk more about this. Hormone disruption, endocrine disruption, metabolic disruption, and epigenetic mutations, which is now becoming a very important issue, and more, and so on. Not one. In fact, there is only one published study, lifetime, um, what called study of lifetime exposure to a formulated pesticide. Right. Professor Sarah Lee uh, looked at Roundup. The study actually looked at Roundup with the GMOs and uh, also GMOs and Roundup. And it looked at Roundup at the levels and less than the levels that, that we are all exposed to. Virtually everybody now has Roundup in their It's the new DDT. It's everywhere. So this is a study that they, Monsanto did their best to kill, to try to get it retracted. It then got re republished in another journal and the editor of the first journal that retracted it and the committee that did it were all sacked from the other journal. So this is peer-reviewed three times. And this is what they found when they started looking virtually Every one of the female rats, except for one who died of ovarian cancer, all had mammary tumors. That's, you know, we can translate that into English, breast cancer. Every single one. And what they found when they started looking at the other tissues, in the case here they've actually divided it into, say, GMOs alone, GMOs and Roundup, or Roundup alone. They found all three caused problems. And they could see the difference between the control, you've got a healthy kidney or a healthy liver, and the ones that were fed either the GMO or Roundup singly, or both, which is what most people get, because most GMOs are Roundup ready. So most people here in, you know, in the United States are eating the combination of both if you're eating an ordinary common American diet. So what I really want to talk about now, which is even more than that, is our children. That there is no requirement by any regulatory authority in the world to have special requirements to look at what happens when the fetus, the unborn, the newborn, and growing children. When I'm using the word growing children, I mean until after puberty. Puberty is another time when hormones are coming out, when, when children are very sensitive to chemicals. And there's absolutely no testing. So, all the ideas about safety are what we call data-free assumptions. They have no data, they're making an assumption that it is safe based on what we would argue is very poor data. The, you know, for instance, when they are testing animals, mice and rats, they test adolescent ones. They don't test the newborn. They don't look what happens when you feed um, parents and what happens to the mother when she's fed and what the happened to the offspring. I'll show you some pictures later what happens to the offspring of um, animals that have fed GMOs, for instance, when you start looking at intergenerational effects. There is no requirement. Um, however, where we have the science by independent scientists, and I want to say we have hundreds of studies, not one or two, in my book, I list many of the studies. I'm talking about hundreds of scientific studies by scientists published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. These are the gold standard. Showing this, that our regulatory authorities completely ignore them and they only take the studies that are given to them by the chemical companies. And if we want to access those studies, we can't because they are commercial incompetence. We cannot see them. 
we're not allowed to have a look at the studies that they are using to determine the safety of chemicals in our food. Where we do get them, we actually find that they're very poor studies. In many cases, we actually find that they show evidence of harm. So, what does the science show that is published? That the smallest amounts of pesticides cause children to have lower IQs, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, which is um, growing, autism spectrum, and I'll talk a bit more about that. That's an epidemic here in the USA and in most Western countries. Multiple organ damage, kidney, liver, lungs, reproductive tract, so on. Autoimmune diseases, asthma, and then later on in life when you start looking at lupus and um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and so on and so on. These the, the, the epidemic, things like lack of physical coordination in children, loss of temper, anger management, bipolar, schizophrenia spectrum, that's increasing. Things like childhood depression and child youth suicide, which is a major issue and we have the data. The other one is childhood obesity, where we know that these chemicals uh, upset the normal metabolic processes of children. So, I want to talk about autism. This is a peer-reviewed study. I'm, I'm one of the co-authors of this, and we looked at 26 diseases in the United States, and we used good data um, from, from United States government organisations to get these figures and we're looking at the increase in the number of children treated for autism in the US since, nine, you know, if you look at here, 1991 up to 1996, and suddenly increases. The red line is the increase in the use of glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup. And what happens around this time is the introduction of Roundup-ready GMOs, and that's why glyphosate skyrockets in use, and you can see autism tracks very neatly with it. We, we, this here, these numbers are what's called a Pearson's correlation coefficient. You don't need to remember that. The main thing you need to remember that that is a standard tool used by statisticians, statisticians to look at the probability that these two are linked. Now this could be an accident. You know, like we say, the increase in mobile phone sales could equal the same, or you know, the increase in the sale of cars in Canada could equal, equal the same. That's an accident. In this case, when we, when we look at it statistically, the chance that these two are not linked is one chance in 10,000. That is an incredibly high probability that this is causing this. Of course, when we published this, we were um, criticised saying, oh, look, you know, the, the increase in organic food sales, you know, could be the cause of it and so on, because that's going up, you know, very quickly, like uh, autism. And they tried to dismiss us. However, a few years later, this is published. And now we actually have a biochemical called we actually see the cause and why. What happens with glyphosate is when the fetus, the child is grown, we're developing nerves. And our biggest bundle of nerves are in here in our brain. And the smallest amount of glyphosate, and glyphosate crosses the placenta into the grown fetus, and it is, is expressed through breast milk. So breastfeeding children, and plus, Every child who's eating a normal diet is getting glyphosate. And the smallest amounts change the development of nerves. So this is the control. And we're looking at the first division of a nerve. And here is with a, a small amount of glyphosate, equivalent to what we would find in our urine or in our blood. And so as a result, this neuron has not developed. It's only got this part of it. Then as it goes to a second division, you see the neuron is not developing properly. By the time you get to the third division, this neuron 
has a fraction of the development of what a normal neuron, nerve cell, should have. And I think what is really important here is that these effects are not reversible. That damage is done. The good news is that we know that when we, if we stop glyphosate, we can build new neurons and get normal neuron development. So that's the good news. But you know, we wonder why autism, bipolar spectrum, you can go on, ADHD, and the amount of um, neurobehavioral diseases in children are increasing. There's the science. It's not just you know, the correlation. And what I want to say with this, which is really scary, is that if this trend continues, by the end of the next decade, something like close to 50% of American children born will have autism. That is absolutely frightening. And what does that mean for, for the future of a society when you consider such a high percentage of people will have this. So I want to put this forward and just show, you know, that's science, that's irrefutable. Let's look at another area where we have an epidemic. All of us are affected by it. Same way probably everybody here knows, has relatives and friends who have someone with autism or bipolar or ADHD. You know, all of us are touched by that. But cancer is another one. All of us are touched by it, one way or the other. Probably the most important document of cancer that ever came out is the world's best-kept secret. It was under President Obama, the US President's Cancer Panel study. And it had 30, over 30 of the world's best cancer experts put this together, looking at cancer. And I think what's really important to get across, what they show here, it's actually uh, put 80%, but actually they, they put it closer to 90% of cancers are caused by environmental toxins, lifestyle. And they, they particularly label chemicals and pesticides as major causes. Radiation is a whole range of things, but chemicals and pesticides <coughs> are a significant contributor to our cancer epidemic. Um, I suppose one would say the good news about this since we know that 80% are caused by environmental lifestyle or lifestyle factors, you know, tomorrow we could prevent 80% of cancers by changing this exposure, by removing them, and then use the funds that we've got to prevent and cure the other 20%. <coughs> you know, think about what other health initiative would give you an 80% reduction in a major series of diseases. It's huge, huge, and it's doable. <coughs> But it caused the chemical companies to lose a fortune. So it, it's, it, let's keep it a secret and not tell anybody because it's too simple. Okay, I want to talk about children. What we're seeing now is an epidemic of children's cancers, like leukemia, for instance. Um, in this one, they talk about in the US how the cancer incidence in the US continues to increase. The um, World Health Organization, this is last year. You know, are showing that children's cancers are continuing to increase. And this is despite the fact we're having you know, like an increase in the amount of children in the world. If you factor that in, we're getting an increase of 13% more children's cancers. So let's look at our friend glyphosate again. And I can actually do this with a lot of different chemicals, but we haven't got the time. I just think glyphosate is the same thing again. If you look at something like thyroid cancer, and it kept it a fairly steady line. That's what the green line shows you. It was fairly steady until the magic years of the early 1990s when we introduced Roundup Ready crops, and suddenly skyrockets. The red line is glyphosate. The um, Blue line is the increase in uh, GM soy and GM corn. Because so they basically track 
Once again, uh, we pick these because chance in 10,000 that these are an accident. They're not related. One chance in 10,000. Uh, Uranu, bladder cancer. You see it goes up and down. And then suddenly, around the same time, up it goes. And it tracks once again, you know, like I say, when, when we did the Pearson's correlation coefficient, it's about a one chance in 10,000 that these are not related. Once again, when we published this, we were told, oh, correlation isn't causation, it's just an accident, even though, <laughs> well, I suppose the best way to say it, if this was a pharmaceutical drug that was used to take off the market immediately if, when they saw this level of correlation, it's only a pesticide in everybody's food, so what does it matter? You know, it's, it's just an interesting thing, but there's no proof that, you know, that glyphosate or GMOs cause this. However, the year after we publish, the international, you know, the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research into Cancer shows that glyphosate, they give it a 2A rating. I just want to explain what that means. 2A means that it definitely causes cancer in animals. So it's a carcinogen in animals. When we look at people, we have limited um, examples. The, the, there's, there's a few different types. The, the main one that they know um, glyphosate does cause is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and probably other lymphomas like Hodgkin's lymphoma. But, and then there's a range of other ones as well, but, but definitely non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in people. Uh, so that's why I've got 2A and not 1. There's only out of the thousands that they've tested, only about 100 compounds they've given at 1. That's when we have lots of evidence of it causing cancer in people. Over time, this will get a 1 as we're getting more and more evidence. So, the next thing I want to talk about, and this is to do with, Adrian sent me the good news that your government is phasing out chlorpyrifos. I really hope it's quicker than three years, and, and uh, I'll explain. Um, one of the things will show that many pesticides were developed as nerve poisons. They are nerve poisons. For instance, um, chlorpyrifos, which Governor mentioned today that's part of a group called organophosphates. They were developed by the Nazis as nerve poisons for warfare. And uh, although there's actually there's no evidence that the Nazis actually used them, the, however, they uh, you know we do know, for instance, that you know they were used in Japan by one of the sects there. We know that Saddam Hussein used them very effectively against the Kurds, and we do know also. Um, in Syria, they're being used regularly to kill people. What actually happened is that this research was taken after the war by, by American scientists and they used that then, modified these poisons slightly to make pesticides to kill insects. But they essentially work on the same principle that they kill, they damage the nervous system. Now, we know with a whole lot of the the poisons, nearly all the neonicotinoids, um, pyrethroids, I can go on and on and on. They all damage the nervous system in slightly different ways. What is really critical here is you know, how I showed you the slide of the um, how Roundup damages the developing nervous system. You know, they don't develop properly. All of these pesticides do exactly the same thing. The smallest amount ca causes the nerves to develop irregularly. And of course, the biggest collection of nerves are the brain. So here's one here where you know, the, one of the scientists is showing that, you know, I wanted to show you chlorpyrifos, and other ones like diazinon have immediate direct effects on neural cell replication, in other words, on the nerves, on the growth of nerve cells. This is one of my favourite studies by Dr. Elizabeth Gillette, and she looked at two groups of two populations in uh, 
Sonora in Mexico, two groups of children, one group were living in the valley around the farming areas where there were pesticides used and pesticide drift, and the other ones lived up in the mountains where they didn't get the pesticide drift and they were growing you know, in traditional um, Mexican systems, farming systems. So the girls, these girls are about four years old. So the girls that, who don't get the pesticides, this is how they draw a person. This is just what we'd expect four-year-old girls to draw. You know, lovely little pictures. But look at this. These girls are the same age. And they can't draw anything that remotely looks like a person. You're looking there at brain damage. Of course, when this is published, the chemical companies go, this is just anecdotal, there's no hard science, you know, doesn't mean anything. After that was published, um, there's a lot of other studies that came out showing that uh, these chemicals do damage um, the, the developing nervous system. In this case, I want to talk about organophosphates, but believe me, at this stage, we, don't, we really don't know one that doesn't. Okay? Um, there's four studies that were published just after it. Everyone came up with similar results, and that is that fetal exposure, in other words, um, this is through the placenta to the unborn, small amounts of, in this case, organophosphates will reduce the IQ of children. Um, one of the studies actually could not find a low limit. They're trying to think, well, what is... We're always told there's a, a safety threshold. When you go below it, something is safe. So they wanted to find what this safety threshold was. They couldn't find one, because there is none. Um, and so this means that very low levels of exposure can cause reductions to children's intelligence. And what I want to explain here is that the majority of people do not get their residues from living next door to farms or working in farms get it from food, particularly organophosphates. Most people, if you test their urine, will have the metabolites of organophosphates, and this has come from what they've eaten, particularly fresh fruit and vegetables. So this is an example of one of the studies where, um, i put this into everyday English. What they did was actually start looking uh, examining the brains of, of, of these children using MRIs, which was um, the standard way of, you know, say, using a microscope and killing an animal, looking on the slide. You know, while a lot of scientists would like to do that with children, for ethical reasons, <laughs> that, that prevent it. So, yeah, fortunately, now we have things like MRIs and ultrascans and things, and we can use them. And so what they actually found with a sample of 40 children, they, with the MRI, they could actually see the areas of brain damage caused by these small amounts of, in this case, chlorpyrifos. I wanted to show this one because this is the one that your governor's talking about, that Scott Pruitt from the EPA has decided is safe. It's only that naughty Obama was going to ban it, but now, you know, got Scott Pruitt in there, we more than happily after, ever after and use these chemicals safely. <laughs> what these mums did, these mums, their big crime was eating fresh food and, fruit and vegetables. The normal American diet, they probably actually thought they were very good, eating good salads and things. But, but those small amounts of chemicals crossed the placenta and affected their children. And that's why, you know, what I want to say, there is absolutely no science to show any safe level of any pesticide on this planet. I'd like someone to show me um, the science because I can pull it apart. I, I, I study the papers. The other thing, I suppose the other thing I just want to say here is this. People complain to me all, all the time, why is organic food so expensive? What's the cost of this? How much does this cost? Doesn't matter how much money you've got in the bank, you will never, ever undo that. You can maybe lessen the effects, but when I think about the amount of children now, parents, you know, or children, parents, children with behavioural problems, and we know the cause. 
We have the science. It's published in open literature. It's just being ignored. This is too expensive. We cannot afford to do this to our children. Organic food is a bargain that it prevents your children having a lifetime of this. It's worth every cent. And that's what I want to get across. The other one I'd like to get across, I'd be nice to speak about GMOs. It's the same thing again. You hear time and time again, oh, you know, there's no studies showing that GMOs are unsafe. You know, they are safe. Actually, it's the other way around. There are no studies showing that GMOs are safe. There is no requirement in any country in the world to feed, test GMO food that eating it is safe. The way it's approved is what's called, um, oh, what's the word now? Um, but basically what I'm saying is, it, it, it's substantial, the words, like substantially equivalent. They look at a few of the minerals and vitamins and they measure those and if they're much the same, they say these things are substantially equivalent. And they just use a handful of them to, to prove it. There's heaps of studies showing that this is a nonsense and that they're not substantially equivalent, but there's no requirement to actually feed GMOs to test animals to see what will happen. Now, some companies voluntarily have done 90-day feed trials. And those results are mixed because they're done by the companies. And uh, they play down the problems. When you see the 90-day studies done by independent scientists, it's always different than what is done by the actual companies. But you hear all the time that no one's ever been cured by GMOs. I'd like to show you this. L-tryptophan was uh, widely available um, you know, uh, health food product. Most people actually took it to go to sleep. Um, or also, it's actually better than using antidepressants because what it does is um, when you take it, it brings on serotonin. Now, the problem with L-tryptophan was that it actually occurs naturally in milk and a lot of foods. So anybody can actually extract it really cheaply and sell it cheaply and you can't patent it. What's the point of having something like that? Because it means you won't make any money. You have to have things that you can patent. So one of the companies, the Japanese company, said, well, okay, we can't patent getting it from milk, but if we genetically modify some bacteria and get it from them, we can patent that and then produce large quantities. So they did and put it out on the market here in the US. They made it in Japan, sold it in the US. And as a result, over 100 people died and between five and 10,000 fell sick. Now, the only reason this was discovered is because it was new unique symptoms, it was acute, no, and it came on quickly. So people went, to, all of a sudden there was an epidemic, people came on, and they found that the thing they all had in, prop, in common was that they're taking this L-tryptophan. Um, they actually then took L all of L-tryptophan off the market for a while. But, you know, and, and what they did in the end was make things like Prozac, so Prozac actually brings on serotonin and a whole range of other things that they could patent rather than actually using something safe that comes from milk. But I just want to say, show here that these people say, oh, there's no evidence GMOs ever killed anyone. Oh, yes, there is. But the big trouble with GMOs, no one is looking for evidence. It's, you know, the ostriches with their head in the sand. If you don't look for it, you're not going to find it. Sorry, wrong one. But, um, oh, I'm so, but when I want to, I'll go back to this study again. I, I use that for Roundup. But you know, this is the only published lifetime feeding study of an animal on GMOs. Only one in the world. That's it. Every other GMO has come on with no evidence as to whether it's safe or not to eat. None. 
And, you know, we're supposed to eat them our whole life. And it's supposed to be safe. Well, this study clearly shows it isn't. So that's why they wanted to suppress it. The same thing again, but I'd just like to show you some of the other studies. And there are other studies in the peer-reviewed scientific journals. This one's in The Lancet. It's actually a guy called Arpit um, Putza. And he was a GMO scientist. And he actually got sacked for when he did his research and actually found the damage it did and, and, and um, put it out. And they did everything to destroy his career. In the end, he, he, he published it. And he published it in The Lancet, which is one of the premier scientific health journals in the world. This is solid science. So they found, now, potentially precancerous cell growth in the digestive tract, smaller brains, livers, and testicles, partial atrophy of the liver, immune system damage, very similar to the things that the Seralini study found. So these are the, the slides and of the intestinal wall. And what this sort of inflammation is on the digestive tract is what we call precancerous. This is the sort of thing that you'll look for, that you know that um, it can or could lead, I should say, not always, but this sort of inflammation could lead to colon cancer. Similarly, the stomach lining. And this sort of inflammation can lead, or you know, in some cases can lead to stomach cancer and to a lot of other problems. This is an example of um, pigs. The difference between being fed um, a ration with non-GM um, corn and soy and those fed with co corn and soy. So these are the non-GM. This is a normal stomach without inflammation. Here's mild inflammation, which can, can happen to pigs. But when they start looking at the pigs fed with the GM ration, they all had various degrees of stomach inflammation. The other one they actually had too was um, basically inflammation or overgrowth of the uterus. Now I think that's a, a real issue to look at in terms of when we're seeing um, diseases like endometriosis and a whole range of other diseases which are becoming, you know, growing all the time, um, whether they are linked. This is actually a Monsanto study that got leaked, went out. And, you know, so, so for Monsanto to say that there's no evidence <laughs> that, you know, that these things are dangerous, this is their own study. Liver and kidney toxicity, like the Seralini study showed. Blood pressure problems, allergies, infections or disease, higher blood sugar and anemia. Start looking at things like uh, type 2 diabetes and other problems we're starting to see. Um, in our communities. GM soy, the rice, I'm sorry, the, the mice had reduced digestive enzymes, altered cell structure, altered gene expression. Um, these, this is an area now in gene expression, epigenetics, that we're starting to understand how important that is in terms of our overall health. It's not just having hormones in balance, it's actually the gene signals are also in balance. When we talk about expression, this is it's a bit like saying dimmer switches. They turn things up and down in, in our metabolism, how, how, how systems work. If we change the way that works, we alter our normal metabolism, what's called homeostasis, the normal functioning. And we're learning a lot more about this with GMOs and with pesticides. It's a very new area, uh, particularly the science of epigenetics. I haven't got time to go into that. The same thing here with the liver. Cells damage, altered gene expression, higher metabolic activity, which suggests toxic insult. In other words, the liver is working overtime to detoxify. And this can lead to um, liver problems later in life. So, in terms of when they've gone and um, looked at the livers under a microscope, they can actually see the differences in cell structures, how they are altered between the control and the ones that have the GM feed. That's quite substantial. 
reproduction. This is a major issue. And start looking at, you know, I talked about the uteri in pigs, but we also know in terms of um, the testicles that uh, in many animals that there is a reduction in the size, in the uh, actual fertility, the quality of the sperm and so on that, that comes between um, eating control non-GMO and what happens when GMO food is added. And so as a result, let's start looking at the offspring. And this is the thing like when I started before with saying it's not just talking about a lifetime feeding study. When what happens to the developing fetus? You know, what happens to them as they develop being fed this? And so in this study, they looked at the, the offspring. Here's the control and the, and the GM. Look at the difference in size. Um, looking at the mortality that they had, um, here's, they've had one non-GM diet. Look at the size of that. And one, two, three, four, five, six GM died in that day. The mortality rate is going up. <coughs> and talk with farmers now about their mortality rates in their um, cattle, their cows, their pigs, and their animals feeding um, GM products. And, and I've, I've got lots and lots of information and documented cases of the mortality rates that they are having the illnesses they are having, and then when they change back, when they can get it, it's very hard for farmers to get it, non-GM feed, these problems just basically disappear. So this is the, you know, rat litters, and you know, the difference, chalk and cheese, between the non-GM group and the GM soy group, underdeveloped. 19 days, you see the differences in size between the two and in their development. So, I suppose I just want to end on that. Just and believe me, I can show you a lot more than that if you really want to see it. I just wanted to, to show you that there is no science to show the GM is safe, but there is plenty of science to show you that is unsafe. And I hope that's convinced you. you know, those pictures are worth a thousand words to actually see what is happening. The last thing I just wanted to, was asked to speak on is why all this is unnecessary. And I've been an organic farmer well, since 1971, and I haven't got time to go through it all, but I just want to talk about a few things that we've talked about, most important in how we reduce and prevent pests and diseases is the concept of soil health. And because most pests and diseases are opportunistic, they attack plants that are stressed. If we can correctly balance the soils, not just in minerals but also in beneficial microorganisms, we can prevent diseases. And just to give you an example here, this is in Ethiopia. And They've grown wheat. It's exactly the same field, the same strain of wheat. This side has been treated with compost. This side with chemical fertilizers. And you know, this side has got rust, stripe rust. Um, now, it's the same level of spore or, or diseases in the environment, but this side has not been affected. Well, the wheat infested with the stripe rust, the chemical one, had to also then be sprayed with a fungicide. It gave oh, 1.6 tonnes, so tonnes, so this is uh, metric, so a tonne is 1,000 kilos. The best way to uh, say is 1,600 pounds an acre off this side, and the one with the um, Composted soil didn't need to be sprayed, resisted the rust, and that gave 6,500 pounds of wheat per acre. Yep. I suppose the other thing I, I'd like to 
Second two, if you had a choice, you know, would you like, would you prefer to eat this sick wheat sprayed with fungicides or this healthy wheat? Now, this is another issue I think we need to get across. Now, this is what we tend to feed everybody when, when really, it's a no-brainer. This is what we should be eating. And then, I'll just sort of give you an example, because I grow tropical fruit. This is I, you know, one, of the, one of the fruits I grow, papayas. Now, this is damage done by one of our worst pests, <coughs> called a fruit spotting bug. And our farmers for years, you know, fought our government to have it banned. We were the second last country in the world to ban it. You guys actually banned it um, almost 20 years before we did. This particular chemical is in the same family as DDT and organochlorine. And there's only one country, other country in the world that banned it later was India. But Australia was second last. Now, um, this, this is the sort of damage it does. But here you can see it, it can no longer is damaged. What I did there was corrected the soil, put compost on it, corrected the deficiencies, and now the plant resists it. It, it works. The other one I want to say too is thinking about our farms as an ecology, not as a chemistry set, in the environment and working with nature, <coughs> agroecology. Let's apply ecological sciences to agriculture, not you know, rather chemical sciences. So to give you one example, what we call functional biodiversity, where instead of having this idea that we want to round up and anything that isn't our plant, our crop, is a weed and we've got a nuclear, get rid of it, you know, have this dead soil um, strategy. If it's bare dead soil underneath our crop, it's perfect, you know. If there's something green coming up next to our crop, it's a disaster. What we want to do now is actually bring in other plants into our system that give us ecosystem services, such as Legumes give us free nitrogen. We can bring in plants that are the hosts of the enemies of our pests and bring them into the system. There's different ways we can do it. Um, so we, many of these plants that we use are, 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 are nice flowering plants because a lot of the beneficial insects, you say beneficials, these are the ones that will um, attack our pests, they, it's their larval stage where they tend to be predators, it's a bit like alien actually, um, they tend to, you know, the mum tends to lay them, here's an example here, um, what, the best way to explain it is that these animals, these plants need, so the, these insects need nectar and pollen become sexually mature, these are, what they get are proto-hormones, the best way to say it. Without them, they don't have the building blocks to become sexually mature. So um, if you don't have these in the system, um, these cannot reproduce. So they reproduce, and then mum will lay her eggs on or next to the, um, the pest, and then um, they hatch. In many cases, they hatch inside and break out. That's actually where where the idea of alien came from, was from these parasitic wasps. Um, and, but there's lots of species that do that, but the critical thing is what we need to do is put in our system are their host plants. Most farms are biological deserts for them, because anything that, you know, else that flowers and it's considered a weed and it's sprayed out, it's killed. We, you know, what we want to do is bring in these and there's a whole range of other plants we can bring in to give us our ecosystem services and actually use them to control the plants we consider weeds. We replace those plants with useful plants. So this is my farm. And these are rambutan trees. And I grow underneath it, I grow a whole range. Actually, I've got around now about 30 different host plants. Because what I want is functional biodiversity and the more biodiversity we put into the system, the more robust it is. So I don't even have to spray organic sprays. 
And I get good crops. I used to export my crops all around the world to places like Japan who are really, really fussy in terms of quality. And I could get it by doing this. So I suppose what I want to end on is this, is that there's this idea that oh, if we go organic, we're going to start. We have to have all these poisons. We have to genetically modify um, plants. Otherwise, we're not going to have enough food to feed the world. And I just want to say that's crap. Absolute crap. Let's start looking at the science again. And, you know, what we start looking at is we're going into climate, exchange and we have, uh, climate change and we're having weather extremes. We actually have very good data showing that in these dry years, or wet years, organic yields higher than the word we use for these systems now is industrial rather than conventional. We want to abandon the convention. This is industrial farming. Here, some of the studies. I, I, I've got a whole chapter on them in my book showing we have lots of data where organic can get and does get equal and higher yields. But most importantly, I want to end on this because we're going to talk about feeding the world. And this is why we've got to have these so called GM crops, even though. The independent science shows that GM crops yield less than uh, normal crops. The, uh, it's only the industry's own studies that show them higher, that they yield higher. But when independent scientists do the research, there's a yield lag with GM. So there's no evidence at all that GM gives, gives more. But if we want to talk about feeding the world, it's not growing more food in Kansas or Iowa and exporting halfway around the world. Actually, we need to get people in Africa and Latin America and Asia, in the rural areas where we have most of the hungry people. And the other really important thing I want to get across is this. In the developed world, developing world, I mean, 80% of the food that people eat does not come from industrial farms. It comes from family farms of five acres or less. In fact, worldwide, only 30% of what we eat comes from industrial agriculture. 70% of what the world eats comes from small family farms. Because you know, a, lot, a lot of the corn that's grown in Iowa and other places you know, goes to feed cars, trucks. You know. um, or the other one that goes, is goes in the feedlots where, for instance, for every 10 pounds of protein we put in, we get one pound of protein out as uh, animal feed. Now that, that's a really efficient process, isn't it? <laughs> and same energy-wise as well, you know. So, um, you know, we start looking at things like this and we can actually see our, our food system is broken. But what I really want to get through is this data. That this is, you know, is an iPhone and we looked at and we worked with the United Nations on this, and we looked at 114 projects in 24 African countries, um, two, 2 million hectares, that's 5 million acres, 1.9 million farmers, and where we took them from the traditional system and taught them organic by design, not organic by neglect, organic by design, the average increase was 116%. In East Africa, we got 128% increase in food. And so, you know, this is where we need to get the increase. The fact is, you know, with not much money, let, let, it costs around $100 million to develop one GMO. With that money, we could teach the whole world how to grow organically and we could feed it tomorrow. In fact, it's probably you know, less than a day's bomb in Syria in the first world. You know, you've got our priorities right. And so, I suppose I want to end on this because we can have this as our future, or we can have this as our future. You know, and it's up to us, and we're, we're the ones who actually got to be active to, to, to make that change. Thank you.